Oh, John, John, you silly fool. Can't you see it's you I love? Don't you know that if the whole sky were raining hundred-dollar bills, I'd go stand under a tree with you, darling, because you're my bright, shiny penny. Cut, I'll be in my dressing room. What's wrong, doll? What's wrong? Nothing. That's the problem, Al. I'm the only starlet in Hollywood with no scandal. It doesn't matter, Angel Face. Bright Shiny Penny is going to be the biggest hit of 1943, and the name Dorothy Del Monte will be in the lips of every American with a spare nickel to plunk down at the ticket window. But the magazines don't cover me. I need a whiff of scandal like everybody else. Maybe I could, uh, poison my husband. You got no husband. What happened to him? Somebody poisoned him. Do you see what I'm saying? That could have been me. Put it around that I've got a drinking problem. Eh, everybody has a drinking problem. Say I'm an infomaniac. That's Tallulah Bankhead. Say that I use cocaine. That's Tallulah Bankhead. Say that I'm bisexual. That's Tallulah. I get it, I get it. All the good ones are taken. I've got it. Say I do yoga. Who's he? It's a thing. I think it's from India. You twist your body around and say that I don't eat meat anymore. Sugar, this is getting weird. And I'm adopting a baby from Africa. Baby, I agree a few rumors can really spark a career in this crazy town, but you're going too far. People are going to think you're nuts. I don't care. Tell the world I've given up coffee and booze and cigarettes. I'm, I'm going to be the vanguard of a new kind of Hollywood celebrity. You're not going to actually do any of that stuff, are you? Of course not. Let's listen to a radio show about the history of Hollywood gossip, a controversial opera, and the future of baseball. And now, the man who took all of Jackie Coogan's money, Colin McEnroe. I didn't take all of his money. I invested all of his money. And it was 1929, and some things went wrong. Uh, and he wound up fine anyway. I don't want, Why do people bring up Jackie Coogan all the time? Why do people throw Jackie Coogan in my face? All right, so welcome to The Scramble. Uh, and we uh, are going to have a three-part conversation. Uh, and But I think there's actually a sort of a connecting theme. I don't, can't really say we really designed it that way. But the, if there is a connecting theme, it's the notion that art or culture needs a certain amount of scandal, that, uh, that to prosper the... Art needs scandal. So in our second segment, we're going to talk about the death of Klinghoffer, a uh, controversial opera at the Met. Uh, but we're going to talk about it from kind of a different point of view. Our guest basically kind of believes that it's sort of an everybody wins situation. Everybody can either raise money or cultivate enthusiasm, ranging from opera itself to the ADL to whoever. Everybody makes out okay because everybody's so excited about this. In our uh, final segment, we're going to talk about baseball. It's the World Series. My personal belief is that people do not, do not care about the World Series anymore. Uh, Brian Curtis, our guest, will tell me otherwise. Um, so, uh, but my, one of the things that I believe is that, you know, one sign of baseball's health was probably the steroid scandal because people really cared about how Roger Clemens threw the ball so fast or uh, why Mark McGuire could hit things out of the park. Well. For Hollywood, scandal is kind of a constant, or is it? I mean, I think that's sort of w one of the places we're going to go with Alan and Helen Peterson, a uh, features writer for BuzzFeed, uh, the author of Scandals of Classic Hollywood, Sex, Deviance, and Drama from the Golden Age uh, of American Cinema. And one of the things that attracted us to Anne Helen Peterson, in fact, we sort of feel as though we've been looking for her for most of our lives as a radio show, is that she left academia after writing a dissertation on the history of the gossip industry to do long-form journalism about this kind of stuff, which is exactly the kind of thing that we do with some frequency here. So, Anne, Anne Helen Peterson, I'm very excited to make your acquaintance. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So, um, 
let's let's sort of talk about the the nature of scandal in the so-called golden or classic age of Hollywood, let's say 20s, 30s, 40s, early 50s. Um, and maybe as we go along, we can contrast it a little bit uh, to, to today. I, I take it that one of the real differences is that to a certain degree today, George Clooney manages his affairs however well he manages them. And by affairs, I mean everything from business affairs to romantic liaisons. And, and is, you know, I mean, he has people. You know, but he, he's basically uh, a self-actualized entity. Whereas, uh, for most of the period that you're writing about, it's a more patriarchal system, right? There are a lot of people deciding who you are if you're a Hollywood star, and you might be pretty low on that list. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely ruled by committee. You know, there wasn't one person who was the head of the studio who couldn't. I mean, those they were all, were all male who was making the the judgment call about what kind of star uh, performer would be. But at the same time, like a star was essentially raw performance material, and they would take that raw material and shape it into something. And that new something, that new star would have a different name, have a different hairline a lot of times. Rita Hayworth famously had electrolysis on her hairline to make her look less, quote-unquote, Latin. Um, and, and also meant to mean something like a particular notion of femininity. So someone could be a vamp or a good girl or a great mother, that sort of thing. And as you said, I think the the style of management has really changed in that all of the functions that the studio used to perform for that star are now functions that each star has to employ, you know, an agent and a manager and a publicist and a trainer to do all of those things that were formerly performed by the studio. Um, so one has people. But but back in those days, as as you looked at Valentino or Clara Bow or Dorothy mm-hmm. Dandridge or Mae West or Jean Harlow or James Dean, all these people had to varying degrees scandal attached to them. But it doesn't seem as though you could really inscribe a particular rule that determined that, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, you, you think of uh, Fairbanks and Pickford. I mean, the scandal kind of was, I guess, that maybe they weren't, you know, the romantic couple that they appeared to be on the screen but so that's sort of you know a normative thing you know we all want to be believe in love and we all want to believe and, and maybe in the 1920s we especially wanted to believe in a certain kind of couple may west got in trouble for being essentially who she always claimed she was right yeah i mean Fair, the thing about fairbanks and, and pickford is that they both divorced their spouses to be with one another and it should have been a huge scandal. I mean, they're the two biggest stars in the world. And what they did really effectively was frame their romance in terms of true love. And so there was a sort of mild scandal as the 20s waned and and their marriage unraveled. But at the same time, there should have been a huge, huge scandal in the early 20s, and they really effectively managed that. But someone like Mae West, I mean, she was scandalous just because she was a She's a buxom woman who also wrote all of her own material, and her entire image was really underpinned by sex and the suggestion thereof. But I mean, I, one wonders whether that ultimately, I mean, apart from occasionally having to spend eight nights in jail or something, whether that actually hurt Mae West. In other words, we, we've always used movies to dream. So, you know, what do we want to dream about? Well, one of the things we want to dream about uh, is... Uh, and particularly in her era, you know, a world of license, you know, a world where one's passions and proclivities could be pretty freely indulged, maybe more freely than they were being indulged in in Winesburg, Ohio, or wherever her movie was being played yeah. at that given moment. So, so that's fine then if she has a scandalous life. I mean, once in a while she gets a ticket written or something like that, but it seems 
inherently necessary for her to be scandalous. Well, you know, the, the fascinating thing about Mae West, actually, was that she – it was her roles and the, the things that she wrote that were scandalous, but she kept a squeaky clean image off stage. I mean, if she – she didn't drink. Um, she wasn't associated. I mean, she was associated with some prize fighters, but that was mostly that she liked to go to the prize fights, which is explained by the fact that she had a father who used to be a prize fighter. But she, you know, went to church every Sunday, and really the studio, her studio Paramount, really emphasized the fact that she was nothing like that wanton woman that she played on screen. And that was the same as well for so many of those stars who played very um, sexually loose for lack of a better word, women in the early 30s. So it, it's sort of, I mean, if you think about that and if you think about um, uh, the pattern, if there's a pattern, it's that frequently one is not what one appears to be on screen. If you appear to be squeaky clean on stage, then it turns out your life is, is much more uh, tawdry and, and, and sordid. And if you appear to be, right. uh, if you appear to be this wild libertine on stage or on screen, uh, it turns out that you're home with a glass of milk. <laughs> right. Well, but the thing that the studios tried to do over and over again was when the, the, the image on screen was squeaky clean to try to promote that, yes, in fact, this is how this person is off screen too, because then it seems less like acting, less performative and more just like, here's an extension of who this person really is. Um, whereas the the more ironic or the, the harder thing to pull off was when you were like, okay, well, we said that for these other stars, that yes, there's no difference between how they are in real life and how they are on screen. But, oh, these other ones, when they're bad on screen, actually they're still good in real life. So the idea was that every single star was good and domestic and heterosexual and totally vanilla in their quote-unquote real life. Well, you know, and I feel as though I was trying to think what's changed and what hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you write about Montgomery Clift. Okay, so there's an example of a guy who was depicted as this um, very heterosexual dating kind of wild guy with a lot of, uh, or playboy with a lot of, uh, a lot of dates and a lot of um, sexual magnetism on screen. We now know the real story. Uh, you could say the same thing about Rock Hudson, but, but kind of in a different way. Uh, right. but, but it was essential it was, as a matter of business, as a matter of keeping everything going, that the, 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 the homosexuality be swept under the rug or really sort of kept tamped down as much as possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was for someone like Montgomery Clift or especially Rock Hudson, it was an open secret in Hollywood. But still, you know, Rock Hudson denied it until, you know, he died still denying that he was homosexual. And, and you know, I feel as though that might be one thing that kind of hasn't changed that much. Yes, we've got, you know, Neil Patrick Harris and, and Haish and, and Rosie O'Donnell and, uh, and Portia de Rossi and Ellen DeGeneres. And, I mean, I could reel off a, a bunch of names and you, you could get a lot more of them than I could. But the reality is, if you look at the most bankable people in Hollywood, um, they, they're not. And one has a sense that... There are some of them, and obviously the names that often float up are those of Tom Cruise and John Travolta. There are those, or some of them, where there will be this sort of lifelong battle <laughs> between right. them and people who say that they're gay. And that you still, from a certain point of view in terms of sheer bankability, is still pretty tough to be gay. Yeah, well, I think that's in part because um, worldwide and in America, the idea of masculinity is still really wed to heterosexuality. I think that's changing, but I think... You know, if we're still talking about not just urban areas, but like 
all of America, that one, that correlation still holds. And, you know, when Tom Cruise, um, he was accused, or not accused is the wrong word, there was a, a, someone who sold the story of an affair with Tom Cruise, a homosexual affair, to a Spanish newspaper. And Tom Cruise sued for libel, and his claim was that his image as a Hollywood star and his, his earning capacity was so wed to the idea of being a masculine, heterosexual um, ideal. And he won because he said, you know, like, this person has impinged upon my ability to play that role. And so he won that case. Now, that's specific to, you know, Spanish court. But it still, I think, underlines the, the idea that Cruz has to maintain this very specific image of white heterosexuality in order to maintain his image. Um, I'm going to bring up my one sort of cultural theory about all this that's uh, yeah. very, very poorly worked out. Um, but I, one of the things I believe is, you know, there's all sort of a counter narrative, and that's what we're really kind of talking about here. Um, and, and a lot of times the counter narrative is sort of the, the thing that's forbidden, the thing that's uh, we're not supposed to know about, and maybe the thing that we can't have ourselves. And so in the 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, this, the hidden narrative was, you know, Tyrone Powers, a womanizer, Isabella Rossellini, I mean, excuse me, um, uh, Ingrid Bergman, Ingrid you know, Bergman. Yeah, running around with uh, European men and people leaving their wives and husbands and leading these kinds of wild lives and and having cocaine problems and yeah. I mean we were joking about Tallulah the Bankhead in the intro but I mean you know right. so so that was the counter narrative because in fact what was what you could show on screen was a little bit circumscribed you know there yeah. were decency codes and stuff like that so the idea was off screen must be really crazy and right. it's, it seems to me that you know if you look at the big stars today you know it's Jennifer Lawrence and Leo DiCaprio and Sandra Bullock and Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie and Tom Hanks, you know, and Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum and Matt Damon and George Clooney and Hugh Jackman and Ben Affleck. These are like family people for the most part. And, oh, you know, yeah, and they all and they all yeah. they're all vegetarians and they don't do and they do <laughs> yoga. And, and it's sort of like that's the counter narrative right now. You can show anything on the screen. You can show right. anything you want. So the counter narrative is Gwyneth Paltrow. Look, look how incredibly together and healthy I am. Right. No, and even someone, you know, like arguably Robert Downey Jr. is actually the biggest male star right now, given like box office. And he, you know, has a completely sober life, just had another baby, you know, like he is the opposite of the, the narrative that like, uh, that structured his image even 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, that's the most bankable narrative. And, and the newest practitioner of that is Matthew McConaughey, who's still right. weird, but he seems like he's weird within this family context. And, totally. You know, I mean, he's always thanking his kids. And, well, uh, and that's why it's fascinating what's happened with George Clooney is that for so long he maintained this image of like – of the cat, like of this bachelor cat, and even he is now kind of subject to domesticity and cover of People magazine with his wedding photos. Right. So that's the secret dream is that we could all be healthy vegetarian monogamous. <laughs> um, so uh, we're we're going to sort of switch topics just a little bit anyway. But um, yeah. Anne Helen Peterson, one thing that we we often do like with a, a writer like you, somebody who's really uh, staying on on top of uh, popular culture. Uh, and I know that in particular, you write a lot about television. You taught a whole course about Mad Men. So um, tell us, what are you watching right now? I am actually watching very little network television. So. I, and I don't think I'm unique in any way in that. Uh, most of the shows that I'm watching are actually available either on extended premium cable or not available on TV at all, so via Amazon. So my favorite, actually, probably of the last couple months is a show called Transparent, mm. and it stars Jeffrey Tambor from Arrested Development as a, a transsexual who 
uh, comes out to his kids and and starts living as a woman. But it's about much more than that. It's a beautifully shot and scored uh, kind of meditation on what it means to be uh, selfish or uh, giving or all sorts of things. And it just like the feel of California is really, really present there. And it's just a half an hour. And if you have Amazon Prime, it's right there for you to watch all of it right now. I think you're also watching The Affair, which I, I, I didn't see last night's episode, if there was one last night. I forget what the, what night they drop on. But um, And I have a very uh, ambivalent relationship with this series so far. But what's your take on it? Yeah, I've only, I haven't seen last night's either. I've only seen the first two. And, you know, I was drawn to it because the two leads are people who have given very uh, compelling performances in other shows. The, the male lead is uh, McNulty from The Wire, and the female lead plays this kind of dastardly villain on the show Luther, which is on Netflix. And I, um, I was, and it also, it's just about an affair. Like, it doesn't seem like it's that interesting of a topic, but the way that they do it is kind of uh, Kurosawa-esque in that they show half of the show from one perspective for the first half an hour from the, the perspective of the male, and then the second half is from the other perspective. And I, I've been fascinated by how it doesn't seem as gimmicky as I thought it would be. I, I think that, that the, the different perspectives are really interesting. And so, in, and in each case, the person who's telling the story casts the other person, the other part of the affair, um, yeah. as the more aggressive, wilder, again, more libertine kind of person. And there are kind of, there are lots of little visual cues that you can watch for that are really uh, interesting. I mean, they're even dressed differently. For example, uh, in yeah. the second episode, uh, Dominic West, McNulty from, from The Wire, uh, he's, um, uh, and when he tells the story of this big party, he was that he's out. He's dressed rather casually, casually, kind of you yeah. know, nice jacket, open, open neck shirt. When his uh, his paramour tells the story, uh, he's in a tie uh, and a, he's in a suit and tie and looks rather formal. And to me, what's interesting about this show, although I think I kind of object to the way they do it, is it it, it purports to be also about socioeconomic class, right? right? He's he's from a very wealthy family. He in fact is not a wealthy man. He's a school teacher and a kind of unsuccessful writer of literary fiction, uh, but. He's from this immensely wealthy family, and his wife, I think, is and she. She does something where she makes a lot of money. I forget what it is, but um, and and she, meanwhile, his miss the woman who's going to become his lover is supposedly from this dirt poor part of Long Island. Uh, what, but what that really means is she owns this. You know, she owns this house that is you know that's gorgeous. sort of a gorgeous house. It's rustic, gorgeous, and this kind of enchanting dump in some part uh, of uh, of the eastern part of Long Island that is. I mean, it's got to be worth millions and millions of dollars. And her husband owns this sprawling horse farm, you know, uh, where the, he has riding lessons for the rich children who come to stay out there. Except that, uh, you know, so and the, but they're sort of working people. She works in this kind of, you know, diner kind of place. And, and he you know does horseback riding lessons or whatever. But it's not plausible, really. I mean, no. that, that socioeconomic divide, it's, it's a, well, I, I'm babbling. I should let you talk. No, no, I think, I mean, it's very typical of the way that most television does class, which is the way that they signal that someone is working class is they, like, have a beard, <laughs> like, yeah. work, at a, work as a, a waitress, um, but aren't ever dirty and always look great and just live, like, I don't know, I always think of Gossip Girl where the way that you knew that someone was working class is that they lived in Brooklyn. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you that it's kind of a hackneyed and uh, stereotypical rendering of the way that these sorts of stories go. And But I do like the the, con- the conceit that 
you know, we tell ourselves stories about the way that a romance or anything in our lives happens, and to see that rendered is really fascinating. Yeah, no, I think that part of it's fascinating, and the manufacture of memory. But I'll just whine about this one last time and say, this is what I, the, the socioeconomic thing is what I refer to as the, the Nancy Meyer problem, which, you know, I like movies like As Good As It Gets or um, uh, Something's Gotta Give or whatever the one with Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin was, and I would throw into that a movie like The Kids Are All Right, but there's there are never any actual poor people in these movies. They right. always have these right. fabulous living environments. Yeah, and you can tell always by the fact that they all have perfect teeth. Right. Everybody has, there's sort of a, a floor below which they do not sink. All right, right. we've got uh, just a few more minutes with you, and, and we, oh, I have to ask you about this. this is, it's so fascinating. There's so many things that you've written about that are very interesting, but um, I do have to ask you about this BuzzFeed piece that you wrote about television criticism in the New York Times. I will preface this by saying Alessandra Stanley, Stanley's actually been on this show, so I'm one of the few people who apparently has ever heard her voice. And... Um, and I used to work with Neil Gensler. But uh, I still think you, you've got some interesting points. And one of your points is, and I guess this was, this was occasioned by a firestorm, which I completely missed, an Alessandra uh, piece about the um, African-American showrunner, Sandra Rhimes, that yeah. was, I, I read it, and it's, it is sort of interestingly toned deaf in, in certain ways and starts from a premise that's going to get people's hackles up uh, about angry black women. Uh, but you sort of went from there to say it just that the New York Times has never had a high comfort level with television. Right. Absolutely true. And, and so see what you mean by that. I mean, television until very recently was a really denigrated and low form of entertainment. And it's only been within the last 20 years, usually people market to around Twin Peaks. I mean, there were different types of what were called quality television before that. Mm-hmm. So the second golden age, which was um, like Mary Tyler Moore show and that sort of thing in the 70s and also Hill Street Blues in the 1980s. But it wasn't really until... Twin Peaks in 1990, but then really The Sopranos and the cultivation of HBO, which marketed itself, you know, as it's not TV, that there was this widespread widespread legitimization of television as, you know, there's all these think pieces that compare television to novels, which is an effort to estrange it from its history as a popular medium that was filled with trash. You know, famously in 1960, uh, 1962, um, Newton Minow, who's the head of the FCC, called it uh, called television a vast wasteland, and that designation really clung to it for for many decades. So part part of your thesis, and it's an interesting one, which is that because television for a long time had, uh, as you say, no intellectual standing or very little intellectual standing, mm-hmm. and also kind of no uh, auteurist theory about it either, which is right. sort of crap that came on when you turned on this piece of furniture in your living room, um, that um, there was no need to kind of even develop critical sensibilities about it. So one thing that the, that the Times did was they would occasionally give the uh, TV critic job to somebody who'd been some other kind of critic or somebody who hadn't even ever been a critic before. The idea being if you could run the, you know, the Beirut Bureau or if you could, you know, be, I don't know, the lead national reporter about something, you could probably review television because it didn't exactly take a genius. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't merit any sort of specialization. And, you know, before, like the the critics, they had two longstanding critics for much of from the beginning of the medium, essentially, until like the 90s, really. Mm -hmm. And those two men, you know, they were well-versed in television because they had seen it all. Right. Um, but what you have with Stanley is someone who has no background. And, I mean, there would be if, – if they had – if they hired someone who used to be a foreign correspondent to be, let's say, the opera critic or the dance critic or the architecture critic, there would be an uproar. 
because obviously that person hasn't been you know, versed in the, the extensive history and the knowledge necessary to, to critique this, whereas this is just kind of like, if you can write, then you have something to say about television. And that is really at odds with the way that so many other publications have now started to treat television. Right. So, I mean, and, and uh, we're running out of time here, but just a couple other quick points worth making. Yeah, so first of all, you have people like Emily Nussbaum at The New Yorker, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm blocking the name of the woman I like so much at, at Slate. Um, oh, Willa Paskin. Yeah, Willa Paskin. She's been on this show. Um, yeah. and, and so these are people, obviously, who just really kind of trained in this. You know, they've trained their, in their sensibilities. They often write about shows knowledgeably and familiarly about shows that I think they could not have seen in their lifetimes as, you know, real-time shows. But they've, right. they've sort of gone right. back. Just the way... As a film writer, you would go back and you would see Kurosawa, even if you weren't, you know, contemporary. Um, So they've sort of done that. And the other thing they do is that they sort of realize that there's a kind of real-time conversation that's going on right now on social media. So that, you know, whether you're Willa or Emily or anybody else writing about television, you kind of, you can't just sort of produce these kind of finished freestanding pieces. There's an ongoing dialogue that's going on in social media and a lot of cross-linking, which the New York Times is loath to do. Right. Absolutely. And so just like that, there is such a rich conversation about television that's going on amidst uh, different critics and fans and showrunners. You can find this on Twitter. And that that's something with which uh, Stanley and most of the New York Times department uh, don't choose to engage. I think it just it, it shows uh, the ways in which the New York Times is still in some ways behind the times when it comes to television coverage. Yeah, typically, if they're writing about a trend on television, they're about a year and a half. I mean, right. like, they'll be writing like about cougars on television, like, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. about around the time that particular idea is playing out. Uh, all right, well, it's been great to talk to you. I hope you won't be a stranger. We actually do have um, a burning need for people with academic credentials who can talk about popular culture. Wonderful, so, yeah, um, this is great. We'll put you on speed dial. And Helen Peterson, the new book is Scandals of Classic Hollywood, Sex, Deviance, and Drama from the Golden Age of America. Cinema. You can also read her on BuzzFeed. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to move up a rung in the cultural hierarchy to the world of opera, the death of Klinghoffer specifically. All right. So I said to, to you at the beginning of the show that um, one of the themes of today's show would be that uh, any industry, um, particularly any cultural industry, needs a certain amount of scandal. The word scandal, I think we can use in a, in a pretty broad way. And if there's one piece that I extracted that idea from, it is uh, the one by our next guest, uh, Raphael McGarrick, uh, graduate student in English literature at you know, U of C Berkeley. And his work has appeared in the New Republic, Atlantic.com, and the Jewish Daily Forward. We're talking to him right now about about the death of Klinghoffer. I am now going to do a horrible bit of name dropping and say <laughs> that on Friday night I was interviewing Noam Chomsky on stage and I brought up the death of Klinghoffer and got an earful about it. Uh, and you can probably guess what Noam Chomsky thinks about um, the, the furor over this. But Raphael McGarrick, I think, had a really interesting take on this. And so let's just set the stage first before we bring him aboard. Literally set the stage almost. So uh, the, obviously the Metropolitan Opera is currently staging uh, John Adams's opera, The Death of Klinghoffer. It's actually an opera that goes back to, I think, 91. Uh, and uh, so it's been staged before. This particular staging of it has excited, as did the original one, uh, quite a bit of protest. 
discussed um, entirely uh, on the uh, from the side of uh, of sympathizers with Israel, uh, who feel as though um, Jews are depicted unfavorably, that the Palestinian terrorist viewpoint is over legitimized uh, in this opera. Um, the negotiations between the ADL, in particular, in the Anti Defamation League, and the Met have resulted in some concessions. Um, including the fact that a global HD simulcast of the of the opera was canceled, um, and uh, there's I think program notes from the daughters of Leon Klinghoffer, the man who was in 1985 uh, shot and dumped over the side of the Achille Loro cruise ship, which is the whole uh, the source of this opera and the whole story of this opera. Uh, but there's been a lot of picketing and a lot of controversy and a lot of sound and fury and a lot of um, articles. Uh, written about this. So, Raphael Magaric, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, you're basically making the argument, it might almost be kind of an everybody wins situation in the sense that everybody, uh, uh, the world of art, uh, the world of Zionism, uh, the world of Noam Chomsky, everybody kind of gets to talk to their base about this. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I think that's exactly the argument I'm making. Uh, it works on two levels. Um, on a basic level, uh, publicity is really good for business. Um, the Met is struggling. Uh, it's struggling this summer to fill. Um, it turned out this summer that it's been struggling to fill seats. Um, and it's also increasingly dependent on online donations for revenue. Um, and you can imagine how a story like this, which is playing out, you know, in the pages of the New York Times, you know, and all across uh, the media, is really tremendously good at publicity for the Met. Um, but on a secondary level, I also think that there's a uh, an extent to which um, protest is part of the myth of modern art. It's part of what legitimizes high art. Um, so when Joyce's Ulysses is stopped at the borders and is, in fact, censored, that's part of what canonizes that novel as a great modernist novel, that it offends people. Um, so to that extent, I think really this controversy is great news for the Met and is great news for opera. It, it is interesting, uh, and although, in, in fact, in an ideal world, the hysteria would be more about form. I mean, you think about 1913, uh, the Rite of Spring, uh, and then Schoenberg also, and had caused separate uh, outcries and no, riots, basically, uh, in their respective venues, not because of the content, not because there were dirty words or anti-Semitic content or anything, but just because the music was so weird and the choreography was weird and the, it just people freaked out because they'd never seen art like this. And and it seems as though that's a much more rare thing that I mean, the most we can hope for in this day and age is, say, Maplethorpe, where the content is, A, causing these huge lines at museums and, B, causing these, uh, you know, rabid denunciations. Yeah, I think that in, to some extent, um, the riots surrounding the Rite of Spring, which, as you sort of brilliantly point out, are about form, depend on an audience with a strong set of pre-existing convictions as to what artistic form looks like, Right. Um, which we don't have to the same extent today. Uh, and there's not the same sense that how you would compose the harmonies, you know, in a ballet is a matter to go and riot about. Um, 
so, so things have changed in that way. And one of the points that you make that, that I hadn't really thought about is that there's also kind of an interesting question of scale here, that, you know, if the Sausalito Opera Company or something wants to do uh, the death of Klinghoffer, they're going to have a real problem, probably. You know, I mean, if a lot of people object, I don't even know if there is such a thing, uh, but uh, a lot of people object, that's going to be uh, a problem. Uh, whereas the Met is sort of too, although it is, it turns out it's not too big to fail. It's like teetering on the verge of failure all the time. But it's big enough so it can say, we're doing this. And rather than, and we're going to be like the blob where the missiles you shoot into us make us stronger as opposed to destroying our season. Right. And I think we definitely see in a number of ways how opera is no longer for the Met just what happens at Lincoln Center. Right. So Mm -hmm. on the one hand, as you mentioned, the ADL concluded this deal about worldwide worldwide, uh, broadcasts. Um, But on the other hand, the opera is a movie, right, which the Met doesn't benefit from, but which is part of the same kind of cultural phenomenon. Um, And as we said, there's a whole lot of people who are interested followers of the Met who are reading about the story and feel engaged and connected to that cultural institution who aren't likely to set foot in the physical opera building. Um, And so there are all sorts of questions that just don't come up for a smaller opera company, which is more local, uh, because the Met is is in fact a global brand. And as you pointed out, uh, or I guess it's an earlier DVD uh, of the death of Klinghoffer, in one category anyway on Amazon is was number two ranked in in its category. I think between Annie uh, and some version of, of a Fleetwood Mac concert, um, you know, which I mean, it just doesn't happen with opera. There aren't opera DVDs that people want that much typically. Right. I mean, for opera to reach into the world of Annie or Fleetwood Mac is to reach into the world of mass entertainment of popular art um and that's probably i would i would imagine tremendously exciting for the for the company although it does make me want to write an opera version of annie in which annie dies at the end with a score by lindsey buckingham i think i would have something (laughs) i I think that's that's sort of workable uh, in some way so i mean and you sort of wonder what the well we have to say one other thing which is that in new york any cultural controversy needs a whole bunch of things. It needs, obviously, cultural forces in conflict, uh, all of whom seem to benefit basically synergistically from from all the arguing that goes on. But it needs also one other thing. It needs Rudy Giuliani. I'm not quite sure why this is a law of nature, uh, uh, Raphael McGarrick, but it seems to be, right? You have to have Rudy Giuliani in the role of, it's almost an operatic role, you know, an operatic role of the guy who hates whatever the latest thing is. Yeah, I think especially for the New York Times, but probably for a lot of us, um, many of these cultural struggles become ways of moments in which we measure ourselves against the city we were in the 1990s. You know, so the incredible cultural struggles of the early 90s and then kind of the sensation exhibit, uh, which is this famous moment in which Giuliani, you know, actually gotten this incredible confrontation with the Brooklyn Museum are very defining moments in New York, in recent New York, New York memory. Uh, And so one of the things we do is we get to look back and say, you know, depending on which side we're on, well, look how different the city is. Now we have a mayor like Bill de Blasio, who is basically seems happy about the opera, you know, and is not going to get involved in that fight. Um, So the longer history, I think, you know, Giuliani is a very resonant figure. Um, and it tells a lot about how the city has changed. Um, yeah. 
I mean, it's almost like you have you should send your press release to him because nobody would know the what the the words elephant dung Virgin Mary just wouldn't they wouldn't even come up on search engines for you if it weren't for him. You should you may have to make sure that he knows what you're doing. Well, Raphael McGarrick, I I, um, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, actually, I think what I'm going to do now is work on an opera called Squeegee Man. You know, which will be sort of like the last Squeegee Man drawn driven out of existence by Rudy Giuliani. So if like, you write the music, I'll write the libretto. All right. Well, we both want to work on the libretto, it turns out. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us today. Thank you. All right. Bye. We'll be back after this. We have to have a conversation about baseball. We have to have a conversation about the World Series after this. Is the next segment about the death of baseball? But I love baseball, especially now that there's a panda playing in the World Series. Oh, he's a person? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tyrone Power. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff practicing semi-nude headfirst slides, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the story of Connecticut's shade tobacco. And now, back to Colin. All right. So um, I've been thinking about baseball and about the World Series. Um, Most of my thoughts, as tend to be the case, are wrong. Um, But I wanted to have a conversation with someone who could tell me why my thoughts are wrong. Uh, And that's usually not easy, not difficult for me to do. I can usually find almost anybody who can tell me that I'm wrong. In particular, I wanted to talk to Brian Curtis. He's a a staff writer at Grantland, the author of the article The Dead Ball Century. Um, He's one of the people who has been responding to the thoughts of people like me. Uh, As I watch the World Series, when I watch the World Series, I think, I don't know, somehow or other this doesn't feel like part of the national conversation the way I remember it being part of the national conversation. But maybe I don't remember it correctly anyway. Uh, It just seems somehow as though baseball doesn't, doesn't sit on the pedestal that I remember from my youth. But memory is very deceptive. So let's begin with Brian, Cur- Brian Curtis. Uh, you've been responding to this, and, uh, and, and you, you question that premise, right, that, that somehow or other there's this incipient dying out of the baseball flame. Absolutely. I mean, in, in a number of different ways. And, and I think what you're talking about, the, what I keep hearing is that the, it's fallen out of the national conversation. And mm-hmm. I think that's sort of an interesting way to look at it, and, and I think that's kind of part of the where the my disagreement anyway with people that say baseball is dying starts, which is how you sort of define the terms of dying. What does dying mean? Um, so anyway, I think you know part of the reason maybe is that the national conversation as we know it has changed. Right, 20, 30 years ago, the national conversation meant appearing in newspapers and television ratings. And now the national conversation maybe means something like, you know, being on Twitter all the time or, you know, people watching it, you know, consuming a game on the web. So I think part of the problem here is the terms, right? Uh, with, is baseball dying and, and by what metric is it dying? Well, one metric that I would bring up, and it's a wildly imprecise metric, like all of my metrics, is the, the notion of sort of the, the crossover celebrity. So, I mean, in, in, in 1975, I mean, 
forget about the Yankees. Everybody else knows about the Yankees. In 1975, probably most Americans or many Americans, I told you this was an imprecise metric, knew who Carl Yastrzemski was. Like the name Carl Yastrzemski would be pretty recognizable in 1975. In 1985, the name George Brett, just to pick a kid, Kansas City Royal, would have been really pretty widely recognized, crossover kind of person, the kind of person people kind of knew about, even though he wasn't playing uh, for a major market team. Uh, and in the 90s, you know, pick somebody from the, the, you know, the home run era or something like that. I feel like there isn't that now, that the panda notwithstanding, there, there just isn't, uh, by the which is the name of my new novel, The Panda Notwithstanding. But, um, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong about this, though. I'm for, well, I, no, I think you're I think what you're right. But I think that's actually a weird quirk, because I think in the last couple of years, we haven't had one of baseball's big offensive stars in the World Series. Um, you know, Madison Bumgarner's a really good baseball player, but mm. he's not, you know, uh, Yaziel Puig, right, or Mike Trout, somebody that would have had a bigger sort of thing, you know, a bigger sort of stature in the World Series. So I think that's actually what that is, you know, which doesn't really have anything to do with baseball dying out or being less popular, though you could argue maybe there's not a Yaz, a particular Boston star as big as Yaz right now. But I think that's just the teams that are making the World Series, not some you know, statement about the sport generally. Well, let's just talk about the World Series a little bit, too, because it, it, there's another interesting thing going on here, which is that these two teams, I mean, if you really love baseball, these teams are fabulous to watch, and they're not, sure. composed, of, not composed of stars. Maybe you can say a little bit more about this, why, in fact, uh, if, people are, if more people are watching The Walking Dead than are watching uh, the people <laughs> running on the base paths, why that's a mistake, why this is actually worth uh, watching right now. Well, one thing, I mean, one thing that's funny is I went into this in a story in Grayland, which was that people have been declaring the death of baseball since just about the time that we had baseball in the United States. In fact, with a little help from the great historian John Thorne, we found the first uh, baseball death notice, that is a declaration that baseball was somehow dying or irrelevant, uh, in 1868. And we, which is, which is, you know, quite a ways back, and then we found them pretty regularly all the way up to now. I mean, when you talk about TV ratings, that's a funny, that's kind of an interesting way to say it because. You know, when when you look at TV ratings, people, somebody, the New York Times did a story the other day where they said, oh, baseball is, you know, the one of the World Series games had a lower rating than the Big Bang Theory, right? That sounds like a real sign of the times. But then I went back and looked at the 1985 ratings, right? This is when baseball is a much bigger deal, we think, in the national mindset. Well, several of the games finished with a lower composite rating than Murder, She Wrote. Now, I don't really know. I don't really understand why it's a big deal when it, when it finishes lower than the Big Bang Theory now when the last time the Royals are was finishing lower than Murder, She Wrote. Maybe you prefer Big Bang Theory to Jessica Flesher's gumshoeing. I don't know. Well, although just, but, for, just for the sake of argument, I mean, I, one of the more damning statistics, I think I read that same article, that was that uh, the first game of the World Series and maybe the first two games of the World Series had lower ratings than a pretty routine Sunday night football game. Uh, I think it was uh, San Francisco-Denver. Uh, yeah, that's a little worrisome. Yeah, football is a different story, though, because so you talk about you use the image of baseball being on, not being on the pedestal it was. Well, I direct you to a slightly different image where there is a hey, grown up a parallel pedestal for the NFL, and it is bigger than anything we have in society right now. And its ratings make absolutely no sense uh, when we look at the general decline of the networks and stuff like that. It seems to be completely decline proof. So imagine you have a pedestal of baseball, and then you have this giant pedestal right next to it, and way in the air, it's National Football League. I saw a statistic the other day that CBS's pregame ratings are up by a substantial margin for the NFL this 
easier. I mean, think about this. We live in this NFL, in this Internet age, where there's literally not a single thing that that TV show can tell you that you can't just get off the web in five seconds, right? And the people that want football information have all these resources, and yet more people are watching the NFL pregame show. So I just think part of the problem here is we keep comparing it to the NFL. Well, certainly the NFL is gigantically popular. It's the most popular. When everybody has to pick a favorite sport, they pick the NFL and all those surveys and have for many, many decades. But that doesn't mean that baseball's dying or, you know, falling off. It just means that there's something else that's very popular standing right next to it. Yeah, so that, then the argument is the NFL is kind of sui generis and that it's really about something yeah. else, right? It's a, in whatever way our entire civilization is dying, it's a nice symbol of that. that we, it's violent, it's amoral, it's run by people who are dreadful human beings <laughs> who conceal vital medical data from their own employees about terrible damage being done to them in the course of their work lives. It's just the worst of every possible thing, and, and the worse it gets, the more we love it. So we're clearly locked in some kind of cultural death spiral with this thing that may have little to do with its appeal as sport. Is that the argument you're making? You're, 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 yeah, I, think you're, I think you're proposing a separate think piece than all the death of baseball think pieces that we're reading. I'd also tell you that you know, when we talk about enthusiasm for this World Series, if you went to one of those World Series in the 70s, some of those games did not exactly sell out if, if memory serves. You know, if you went to, certainly by the late 60s and the early 70s, you know, we hear all these stories about these great you know, sepia-toned baseball games of yore, right? Like Jackie Robinson's first game in Brooklyn where there were more than 5,000 empty seats. <laughs> the grand institution of baseball has been integrated. Or some of those World Series games where you and I could have walked up and bought a ticket right before the game, no problem. Imagine if we tried to do that in San Francisco last night, right? I think we would have had to, you know, throw out a few hundred bucks just to get in the door. So, you know, we can look at a lot of different ways, but there's certainly, I mean, a ton of enthusiasm around baseball right now and lots and lots and lots of people are going to baseball games and you know you and i could make a call over to mlb and i bet find out that there's record traffic on mlb.com this year right which is another measure of popularity another measure of how people are consuming the game i do think also in a culture that's as balkanized as the way that you describe it um culture also moves in cycles and counter cycles and and whatever our weird relationship with the nfl is right now it's it's kind of screaming for a counter cycle and and, you know this series is a nice bit of positioning for major league baseball there there aren't any preposterous jerks out there there um there aren't uh, any for them that i'm aware of people who are scandalous or objectionable instead it's kind of this nice mix uh, of athletes they're good athletes they do what they're supposed to do really well you know their their statistical uh, prowess is just sort of incredible it seems like every night joe buck is saying that you know nobody's gotten a hit off this pitcher for three and a half years or, or, or something and so it if you want to watch something that's an answer to to everything else that seems to be going on in society. It is it seems like a pretty comfortable place right now. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that that yes, management style is pretty scandalous, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That, I don't know, but yes, you're right. It does not have the overweening national uh, uh, scandal that it did a couple of years ago with uh, steroids and stuff like that. I mean, what's funny when you say that with cycles, it's very funny because it's also a very old argument that baseball is sort of out of step with our national mood. This comes up every few uh, decades or so. In fact, I found a um, story from 1945 arguing that the game was outmoded, and then 1955, too, saying that you know baseball is, is being passed by more exciting sports, right? And this is 1955. This is the golden age of baseball that people of my generation feel we'll never, ever, uh, the boomers will never let us get out of. You know, oh, Mickey and Willie, oh, my gosh, not this again. But even people in those days were saying that the game wasn't exciting enough at the times. 
So I think that's a very common thing, too. You know, we always, for whatever reason it's baseball, we look at it and say, oh, you know, baseball's not a 2014 thing. That's, a, that's an old thing. That's a different, from a different, more innocent time. But even people in those more innocent times were saying the same thing. Although, yes, and, uh, but also people from those more innocent times say the same thing about now. I mean, uh, some, some of the most relentless critics of modern baseball are former baseball players. Uh, and uh, we, had a, oh, yeah. we had a chance to interview Jim Bouton recently uh, up in uh, the Berkshires where he lives now. And, you know, I mean, he talks about I mean, he complains about the thing everybody complains about, which is the incredible delays in the game of people fixing sure. their fixing their batting gloves and stuff like that. He said if, we, if you could eliminate Velcro, uh, you could probably speed up the game, um, and, which is sort of counterintuitive when you think about it. But, um, you know, you, you sort of wonder about that. Is, is, is that particular aspect of baseball so endemic to baseball that it shouldn't change it because it changes too much the nature of the game, the way that it is kind of a, a different kind of mental resting space? Or does baseball need to speed up uh, to, to match digital culture and everything else. I think you can speed it up a little bit without changing its fundamental nature as a resting space, as you say it. I don't think those two things are uh, totally at odds. You know, I think you can make little rules that speed us up here and there. I think what Bowden is, you know, Bowden is certainly a smart guy, but I think what, you know, a lot of this too with players is nothing is as good as the good old days, right? You know, I have old sports writers telling me all the time that sports journalism is terrible now. <laughs> it's pretty good to me. Uh, and when I look at baseball, I think, you know, oh, you can't watch a game on TV. It takes so long. And I think, geez, as a displaced Texas Rangers fan here living on the East Coast, I can watch every game with my MLB package at the tip of a, you know, at the punch of the remote control. Gosh, it seems like the golden age of baseball on TV to me. You know, I can watch more baseball than I ever wanted to. So, you know, and, and if I have to sit through, you know, 25 minutes of, uh, of extra stuff in there. Somebody told me recently that no really good baseball game seems too long and uh, no really bad baseball game seems too short. Mm-hmm. But I agree. There are you can do some sort of stuff with the um with the pace of play without without you know affecting the fundamental nature of the game, sure. All right, Brian Curtis, this has been a great conversation. We didn't even have to bring up the other theory that you see on the Internet, which is that everything is Joe Buck's fault. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's a whole segment for another time. Yeah, I think. actually, wait, that's a whole show. The things that are Joe, Joe Buck's fault. We're doing a whole one-hour <laughs> special on that. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. All right. And so that's Brian Curtis. He's a staff writer at Grantland and the author of the article, The Dead Ball Century. We've got all kinds of fun stuff coming up for you this week. And uh, tomorrow we're taking a journey into the sepia-toned, as Brian Curtis would say, past with the story of shade tobacco in the Connecticut Valley, which is an amazing story indeed. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. We'll see you tomorrow. It's the right kind of day for a baseball There's Jason Vargas with the pitch. And Bumgarner is rumored to have fathered an alien baby with Renee Zellweger. Isn't that something, Greg? That's not as scandalous as Brandon Crawford playing the captain in Klinghoffer. I mean, Crawford's a tenor. Yeah, tune in next time, am I right? No, seriously, please tune in next time.